0: Ask yourself this question. Are you spending your time or investing your time? Hey there, I'm Matt, one of the coaches here at Path for Growth. If you are a business owner or leader looking to get off the hamster wheel of working in your business and want to start investing your time working on your business, then I wanted to let you know that we have launched a free coaching trial where you can do just that. In this 14-day free trial, you and I will work one-on-one to unlock growth while reducing your stress. You'll also get access to all our member-exclusive content and the amazing impact-driven leaders in our community. Are you ready to stop spending and start investing? Find out more at pathforgrowth.com. Click Apply to get started. So when we're facing temptation, when we are put in situations where we might compromise on our values or our principles or what we believe is correct morally or ethically, what should we lean on? We should lean on the truth and what the truth says. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. We're in the middle of the series, Faith at Work, and the thesis for this entire series is that work is not a place for our faith to be concealed. Rather, work is an opportunity for our faith to be revealed. That obviously begs the question, how do I reveal my faith in and through my work? And that's what we've been walking through in every episode of this series. In episode one, we focused on the topic of excellence, and we said that quality is part of your testimony. Next, we focused on countenance, and we said, if you want a cheerful face, invest in a happy heart. Then we turned our attention to confidence, and we said, arrogance is believing you are going to do something great. Confidence, and especially faithful confidence— is believing God is going to do something great. Today, we're going to look at obedience, and then finally, we're going to close out the series with the topic of dependence. But as I was thinking about how we should unpack the topic of faithful obedience, I felt like the most helpful and constructive thing we could do would be really to look at what are three truths about faithful obedience? Because so often, one of the tripping points or stumbling blocks with people as it relates to the Christian faith is that they've got a misconception or misperception of what faithful, healthy obedience actually is and why it matters. And so certainly for each of us individually, it's really crucial that we understand what is this virtue and why does it actually matter. But then even beyond that, it's absolutely essential that if we're going to be able to express our faith and share our faith, that we know what this is and that if given the opportunity, we're able to talk about why it matters. Second Peter says you should always be able to give a reason for the hope that you've been given. And I'll tell you, I have no doubt that you probably interact with men and women every single day that are either impartial to the Christian faith, they're critical of the Christian faith, or maybe they're flat out opposed and hostile to the Christian faith. And without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most base fundamental criticisms of Christianity is often like, oh, man, that's no fun, right? You're just a bunch of prudes, a bunch of shrewds, a bunch of rule followers that set up these arbitrary boundaries and limitations that limit all fun and all freedom. Now, you and I can hear that, and hopefully, we know, like, just right flat off the bat, that, okay, well, that's a misconception and misperception of what obedience actually is and why obedience actually matters. But it's important that we don't just know that that's wrong, it's really crucial that we understand logically and intellectually why that's wrong and that we're able to have a conversation that goes further than, well, just because. Because just because isn't a good enough reason. So why do we do these things? Why do we choose to live this way? Why do you choose to apply yourself to these virtues and these values and these morals and these ethics? Just because isn't a great answer. So it's crucial that we have an intellectual understanding, a rational understanding, but also a biblical understanding of why faithful obedience is worth applying ourselves to. And so looking through that lens, what I felt would be most constructive and valuable is for us just to look at three truths about faithful obedience. So let's jump into truth number one. Obedience is a response to a loving God, not an angry God. So often people's misperception and misconception of obedience can be that, oh, the reason why you follow these rules, the reason why you apply yourself to these structures is because God's mad at you. And because God is mad at you, he punishes you by making life less fun. And here's what I want us to understand and what we would be wise to remember. One of the greatest determining factors in your experience with God is your concept of God. And that's really, really crucial for us to think about, that the way you perceive who God is, is going to impact the way that you experience God. And so think about this for a second. If you perceive God as upset, disappointed, annoyed, and angry, if you just think that he's this cosmic killjoy who wants to just apply these arbitrary rules so that you don't max out on the fun you have, well, number one, you're not going to be very excited about your faith. But... But then number two, you think you're actually going to follow those rules? But so often, if we're not careful, we can get this screwed up ideology and theology in our head that we say God is angry at us. God is annoyed at us. And that's why we need to live this way. That's why we need to follow these guidelines. That's why we need to stay within these boundaries. And what's wrong with that is that that perception of God is incorrect, and it results in an experience of God that is completely screwed up and off kilter. What is true about God? Well, God created you. God loves you. God is for you. God knows what's best for you, but he doesn't even just know what's best for you. God wants what's best for you. And it's in that perception of who God is, a correct concept of God, that we can start to look at the morals and ethics and guidelines that are laid out for us in scripture and say, oh, these aren't punishments that are preventing me from freedom, but rather these are boundaries and guidelines that are actually in existence to help me experience freedom. That when I live in alignment with the way God created me and the way God created the universe, I'm actually stepping into who I am supposed to be. And it's in that place that I experience outrageous freedom and joy and presence and life. And so the thing that I want us to remember here is that our concept of God often determines our experience of God. And if our concept of God is incorrect because we think he's angry and annoyed and mad at us, well, then our experience with God and certainly our our obedience is going to be really screwed up and inconsistent at best. But if we dwell in the rich reality that God created us, God loves us, God knows what's best for us, and God wants what's best for us, well, then obedience is not an obligation, it's an opportunity. It becomes something that we get to do because we're co-laboring with Christ in becoming the men and women and leaders and Christ followers that we were called to be. In John 4, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So think about what he's saying here. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So our obedience is a product of the fact that we love who Jesus is and we love who God is. Now, if we've got this idea in our head that God is angry at us, that God is engaging wrathful punishment on who we are and what we've done, you think we're gonna want to express our love for him through obedience? Probably not. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that obedience is a product, it's a fruit, it's a result of our love for who Jesus is, for who God is. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And so, so often, one of the things that gets in the way of us falling in line with the morals and ethics and boundaries and guidelines that God laid out for us is that we forget who God is. We think that he's angry. We think that he's the punisher. We think that he's wrathful. And out of that, we have no desire to live in alignment with the life that he's calling us to live. But when we remember the goodness and faithfulness and mercy of God, well, then that's when we respond with faithful obedience. Obedience is a response to a loving God not an angry God. One more point on this that I think is really really important. You can kind of start to hear this line of thinking and maybe start to ask the question, "Okay, but there are definitely sections of the Old Testament where God is angry and where God is wrathful." And maybe you've struggled with those before. I'll tell you a book that really helped me with those passages and specifically that idea was a book called Gentle and lowly that really dives into the character of who God is. And one of the things that I love learned in that book, Gentle and Lowly, I believe it's by Dane Ortland, that was so powerful for me, was that anytime you read a you know, section of the Old Testament about God being angry, about God exercising wrath, it says that really it's very clear biblically that God is always provoked to anger. And it's typically after a very long extended period of time, right? Anger very clearly throughout the Old and New Testament is not God's natural State. God's natural state is steadfast loving kindness, even in the Old Testament. It's when people aren't listening, which is going to get into the next point that we have about obedience over an extended period of time, that God's anger is provoked. And it's always in the best interest of the people that he loves. And so it's just absolutely crucial before we move on from this point that your Concept and perspective of who God is is healthy. Because one more time, one of the greatest determining factors in your experience with God is going to be your concept of God. So make sure that your concept of who God is is aligned with truth. Okay, let's move on to the second truth about faithful obedience. Obedience is about attentive listening, not ignorant rule-following. We already said it, one of the criticisms that can be leveled against Christianity is, okay, y'all have created some arbitrary random rules that limit freedom and restrict fun. And that's a misconception of what faithful obedience actually is. It's actually really interesting to look at the words and the etymology of those words associated with obedience. So the word obedience, its root is in the Latin word abdire, And what abdire means in Latin is to listen with great attention. Isn't that interesting? So obedience, literally, the word in Latin means to listen with great attention. But then what's really interesting is if you go further into the etymology and you start to ask, okay, well, what's the antonym of that? What's the opposite of the word to listen with great attention in the Latin? Well, the the opposite of to listen is obviously to not listen or to be deaf to. And the Latin word for that is surdos, So, obdire is to listen, and that's where we get obedience from. To not listen or to be deaf is surdos. You know what English word comes from, surdos? Absurd. And man, I can think of times in my life where it's like, I was listening. I was paying attention, not just to my own ego-driven ambition, not just to my feelings, not just to my temporal desires or impulses, but rather I was listening to the Holy Spirit and I was engaging in what God wanted and I was engaging with the way the universe was created and the way things work best for me and the people around me. And when I listen to that, when I abdiri to that, it's like, man, things go so well. But when I choose not to listen to that, when I don't engage in prayer, when I don't pay attention to what God would want in a given situation, when I don't follow the guidelines of biblically, the way the universe was created and the way wisdom works, surdos, right? I'm absurd. It's crazy, And so the thing that we need to recognize is that this isn't just about ignorant following of arbitrary rules. This is about attentive listening. That obviously begs the question, okay, well, what are we listening to? And the answer to that would be God. Now, Anytime we get into this idea of, okay, well, listening to God, does that mean God is speaking to you audibly? And I would say, I mean, some people certainly experience that, and, and I've talked to people that experience experienced that. But in my experience, for myself, but also other people, a lot of times it's not an audible voice. Here's the thing that we would be wise to remember, though. God is acting and speaking today. God is not just this God that existed 2,000 years ago, and now we only read about him in a book. God is working and acting in alignment with everything that he did and said in that book today, here, and now. So the question is not, is God speaking? The question is, are you listening? And so then we start to look at the idea of, okay, well, where and how is God speaking? If it doesn't always happen audibly, how can I effectively and attentively listening to what God is saying? And that's what I want to focus on within this truth is, is five ways that God interacts with us, that God is speaking or has spoken to us. Number one, God reveals who he is and what he wants in his word, Uh, So, so often we say, okay, well, I just need to figure out what God's saying. And in reality, we need to figure out what God said. This is why it's so crucial that we understand scripture and that we look to scripture. So often in my leadership, if I'm not careful, I forget to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about this? James 1.22 says, do not be hearers of the word only, deceiving yourselves, but be doers of the word. So it's not enough just that we listen to the word on Sundays and maybe we read it for five minutes in the morning or we look at the verse of the day. What we want to be focused on and what we're challenged to do in James 1.22 is to be a doer of the word that's what I want for you as a leader. That's what I want for myself is I want to be the type of person that is not just reading scripture. I want to be the type of person and leader that is living scripture. And that kind of requires us to ask the question, what does the Bible say on this matter? And the thing that's so cool about that is that scripture is authoritative And think about that sentiment for a moment as it relates to this topic of obedience. Well, Scripture is authoritative. And what is obedience? It's to submit to authority. Now, that can be a really tough phrase, especially for strong-minded, high-willpower leaders. But man, we can trust the authority that is in Scripture. I once heard an illustration that discussed the umbrella of authority. And I want you to kind of picture this for a second. So often in my life, I've seen how I've got this authority, the umbrella of authority that is Scripture. But if I'm not careful, I'll live with it to my right or to my left, right? And it's like I'm getting hammered by hail. I'm getting pelted by problems. Meanwhile, I'm holding this umbrella. I'm just not under it. And what does it look like for us as leaders, for us as men and women, to make sure we're under the umbrella of authority because Scripture is authoritative, to make sure that we are living in alignment and submitting ourselves and our decisions and our actions and our words to the authority of Scripture? Here's the principle associated with that. If you want to get over what God has put under you, you have to get under what God has put over you. I'm going to say it again. If you want to get over what God has put under you, then you have to get under what God has put over you. Now, I am not the first one to come up with that statement. Uh, I don't know actually who came up with that statement originally, But the idea that's embedded in that principle is that if you want to properly steward and manage the blessings, the business, the finances, the family, the relationships that God has given you to steward and manage, you need to get under the authority of the rules and guidelines that He's given you that are laid out in His Word. So, Where and how is God speaking? Well, the first way is in his word, and we need to be students of scripture so that we can get under the authority of what the Bible says. Where else is God speaking? Where else is God acting? In his creation, Have you ever thought about how many illustrations the Bible uses and metaphors that the Bible uses that are nature, right? It talks about ants, fig trees, sparrows, roses, vines, branches. It talks about trees literally all the time, right? And so there's something to be said about the fact that if we want to know about who God is and the way God designed the world to work, one of the first things we should look at is nature, And we should ask the question, what is generally true about the way God designed the world to work? That can also point to the fact that we should ask, okay, well, what is true historically and what is true biblically? Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun. And that can be a really comforting realization when you realize principally there's nothing that you will go through that hasn't happened before right and certainly the specifics are different and might change but you can try to find the principles associated with what you're going through and you can say okay well how did god design the world to work what has occurred historically what has occurred biblically and if i look at all these examples i can find some models and some principles that i can extract that can help me obey and act with wisdom In this situation. Now, this really requires us as leaders to look at situations and decisions and conversations principally, strategically, and objectively instead of specifically, tactically, and emotionally. So often, one of the reasons why it can be really easy to say, okay, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say on what I'm going through specifically right now is because we're looking at things too tactically. And if we can step back and start to be principle-based thinkers and say, okay, what is actually the nature of what's going on in this situation or in this decision, then we can find how these ancient texts actually overlay incredibly powerfully into the things that we're walking through and the things that we're working in. And I'll tell you, Oftentimes, the reason why I don't do this or why I struggle with this is because I'm moving too fast. It takes some time to say, okay, in terms of what God has revealed in his creation, in terms of what God has revealed historically and biblically, how does God's truth overlay my situation? A lot of times, I'm just in too much of a hurry to ask that question. This is why it's so crucial that we spend time to engage in awareness, garnering prayer, where we ask, what's going on in my life right now? What's going on in my heart right now? What's going on in my leadership right now? And what does God have to say on the matter? In his word, number one, and in his creation. How else can we listen to and see how God is working and speaking to us through his example, This is what's so cool is that if you are a Christ follower, you don't believe in this God that is mythical and completely unrelatable to who you are and what you go through every single day. That is the beauty and the distinct nature of the Christian faith is that God came down to earth right? We believe that he put skin on. We believe that he became Jesus and Jesus was the son of God, but he also was the great I am. And he was God walking the earth as a 30 year old man. And it's really important that we don't get so enthralled with the divinity of God that we miss out completely on the humanity of Jesus, And so what's so cool about that is one of the questions that we can ask as leaders, as men and women, as husbands and wives and parents, is we can start to ask the question, okay, what's a situation that Jesus was in whenever he was on this earth that had parallels to the one that I'm in right now? And what can I learn from what he did, the way that he acted, and what he said again, so often, I don't take the stutter step. I don't slow down enough to ask that question. It's almost like VBS had something figured out whenever we were kids, whenever they gave us those bands that said WWJD, right? Because that's actually a pretty good question. What would Jesus do? And it can be really easy to look at that question and be like, well, I don't know what Jesus would do. And well, maybe this is a great impetus to get to know what Jesus would do. And so what do we need to look at well we need to look at who Jesus was and what Jesus did in the gospels and that's going to require us to develop a skill set but i will tell you it's a skill set that is so wildly worth developing because it can help you as a leader but then if we're talking about the role of leader as coach and then even beyond leader as coach leader as disciple maker oh my gosh if you can help transfer this skill to others it will be so powerful so what's the skill you've got to learn how to extract the spirit of the situation that you're in or the decision that you're making or the conversation that you need to have. And you need to take that and look for examples where Jesus engaged with the same spirit, right? And so what we're looking for is the core principles or topics or categories of things that were engaged in. We're going to extract the spirit and then we're going to ask the question, okay, when did Jesus engage with something like this and what did he do? And so let's walk through a couple of examples just to look at what this skill actually is and how this skill actually operates. Maybe you have to address underperformance or misbehavior within a team member. So what's the spirit of what's going on there? Well, the spirit of what's going on there is confrontation and how do you handle confrontation in a healthy way? And one of the Stories that we can look at is Jesus confronting the woman at the well. And one of the things that we could say is, man, there's a couple things that Jesus didn't do. First of all, he did not sugarcoat things. Second of all, he never didn't tell the truth, right? He spoke very directly. But also, what did he do? He spoke with gentleness and strength and directness and clarity. And so that can be a really incredible example if we allow ourselves to be immersed in it of what it would look like to engage with confrontation in a way that would be like Christ let's go through a couple more examples. Maybe your company is growing and people are starting to treat you like a big shot, right? So what's going on there? What's the spirit of what's going on? Well, the spirit of what's going on is exaltation, right? People are lifting you up quite literally. And and, well, there's so many examples of where that happened to Jesus, where people started to lift him up. And what did he do in those situations Well, there's multiple times where he literally healed people or performed miracles and then told people, hey, I wanna remain anonymous. Don't tell anyone about this, right? And so there's clearly value in anonymity and there's clearly value to not allowing other people to just exalt us and lift us up beyond what we should be lifted up. But then what else did Jesus do in the moments where he was most exalted? He got on his hands and knees and served. I think about when Jesus in John, I believe it's 15 or 13, washes the disciples' feet And then he says, literally, go and do likewise, as I have done to you, so you should do to others. And it's like, okay, so when we're exalted, when we're lifted up, our natural impulse, our natural response, if we want to follow what Christ did and who Christ was and the way Jesus led, is we should get on our hands and knees and serve. Maybe you've been offered a deal on an acquisition or a sale that is really lucrative, but it would compromise your values and principles. What's the spirit of what's going on there? Well, I mean, one word we could use for that is temptation, right? And thankfully, we don't live in communion with a God that has never faced temptation. That's the whole point of who Jesus was, is he literally went through everything that we go through every single day. And so Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It was the inauguration of his ministry in so many ways. And he was tempted by the devil. And what did he do in that situation? He referenced scripture. He said, it is said, it is said, it is said, and he repeatedly leaned on the truth that God has given us and revealed to us from the prophets of old, and that's what he leaned on. So when we're facing temptation, when we are put in situations where we might compromise on our values or our principles or what we believe is correct morally or ethically, what should we lean on? We should lean on the truth and what the truth says. Let's do one more example. Maybe you find yourself in a situation or in a leadership position and you can see examples of where people are being taken advantage of. Maybe it's people in your community. Maybe it's customers that you have. Maybe it's team members. What's the spirit of what's going on there? Well, the spirit of what's going on there is manipulation and evil. It's power, using power for the wrong sake, right? And it's not good, right? And so what's an example of how Jesus handled that? Well, think about Jesus set the temple, Right. What happened when Jesus walked into the temple, right? He saw a bunch of Gentiles that were being manipulated. And and what was his reaction? Righteous anger. He literally started flipping tables. Now, it's helpful to remember there that Jesus wasn't guarding his ego by any means, or he wasn't guarding his fragile feelings by any means. Jesus was expressing righteous anger in service of others. Now, I give you all those examples just to say that we can develop this skill of looking at the situation that we're in or the decisions that we're faced with or the conversations that we need to have, and we can extract the spirit of what's going on in that thing. And then if we just take the time to pause and ask the question, when did Jesus go through something like this? And what can I learn from what he said, what he did, and the way that he acted? We can learn from his example. Let's focus on two more ways God is teaching us and speaking to us and engaging with us here today. God speaks to us through his people. I once heard someone say, so often we ask, where is God? And maybe the question we should be asking is, where are God's people? Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. As a leader, it's so crucial that you have trusted confidants that you slow down to share all the details with. And I'll tell you, I don't think it's coincidence that every tactic and strategy and principle that we've talked about in this episode so far requires us to slow down. And if we're going to live in community with men and women that we trust, it's going to require us to change our pace. But so often, one of the things that I want you to recognize is that as a leader, your peace is directly related to your pace. And so often, if you find yourself stressed, frazzled, frantic, and weak, you don't have any peace, the first thing you should look at is your pace. And if you're moving so fast that other people can't keep up, then yeah, no kidding. You're not going to have any peace. We were created to live in communion and we were created to lead in such a way that there's other people that know what's going on. Now, this kind of begs the question, okay, well, what do you look for in wise counselors? And I felt like it would be helpful to just highlight three things that would be wise to look for in the wise counselors that you're doing life with and doing leadership with. Number one, do they have a biblical world view? And some people may disagree with this, but I just feel like this is really important. If I'm going to have a coach or a mentor or a counselor or even a close friend that's going to be advising me on my business, it's really crucial that they look at the world through the lens of the Bible. At least to me, that's absolutely important. And here's why it's a principle. Your purpose always affects your path. I'm going to say it again. Your purpose always always affects your path. So think about this illustration for a second. Maybe I'm here at my home in Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to go to New York, right? And the reason why I want to go into New York is, okay, well, I want to see the country and I want to stop at all the small towns and I want to try the local cuisine at every stop along the way. Well then, because that's my purpose, then What's the best path that I should take to get to New York? Well, I should probably drive and I should probably leave an extended amount of time to make stops along the way. Conversely, if my purpose is just to get there as fast as I can, well, then I should just fly to New York and book a ticket, right? And depending on which perspective or which purpose someone is operating with, they're going to kind of give me a different path. And so the same is true with regard to your business and the way that you get counsel from people, right? If your destination is, man, I I really want to grow my business. Well, some people may align with your purpose and they may know like, okay, well, your purpose is to glorify God and love people. And that purpose, as it relates to growing your business, is going to affect the path that you walk and the way that you grow your business, But then you may talk to another person that they may not even be a bad person. They just don't believe in God. They don't have a biblical worldview. And so they think the purpose of growing your business is to grow your business. Well, that purpose is going to affect your path. And your path isn't going to be informed by the values and virtues of loving God and loving people. It's going to be informed by the purpose, which is I'm growing my business to grow my business. Your purpose affects your path. That's why it's so crucial that you have wise counselors that you talk with regularly that have a biblical worldview. Two more things that we look for in the counselors that we talk to, wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? Well, Proverbs 1:7 says, "Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." And so again, what is this? Well, fear is not terror in this context. Fear is awe, reverence, and respect. And so the beginning of wisdom is first asking what is wisdom. And literally in in later in Proverbs it says, "If you want wisdom, get wisdom." So it builds up the value of this powerful rich thing called wisdom. And then you're like, "Okay, well how do I get it?" And it says, "If you want wisdom, get wisdom." So what what does that mean, right? It's saying the people who find wisdom are the ones who know that they need it and are willing to ask for it. And so what I want for myself is to be the type of person that always knows, man, I need to get some wisdom and then is constantly curiously asking and looking for wisdom. But that's also what I want from my counselors, that they don't think they're this expert that's got it all figured out, but rather they're someone that has some experience, that's evaluated that experience, and that is constantly on this journey of never-ending growth where they're seeking wisdom. They know that they need it, and they're actively asking God for it, that are our wisdom doesn't come from within us. Our wisdom rather comes from outside of us. And it comes when we have the guts to ask, where is God in this situation? Where is God in this conversation? Where is God in this decision? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's the final thing that I think is so important for you to look for and cultivate in terms of the people that advise you as it relates to wise counsel. Context. Um, I have a counselor that I've been meeting with about every two weeks now. Sometimes it's weekly. Sometimes it's every two weeks. Sometimes it's less frequent than that. But here's the powerful part. We've been meeting for almost three years. And here's what I want you to know. Context deepens the value of counsel in crisis and expands the richness of counsel in triumph. So let's break that down real quick context deepens the value of counsel in crisis. When I'm in crisis in my relationships, in my personal life, in my business, when crisis happens, that's not the time whenever I want to pick up the phone and introduce myself to someone and say, let me explain the last four years to you so I can catch you up to this situation. No, when I'm in crisis, the valuable counsel is going to come from people that have been walking with me, that have seen the mountaintops, that have seen the valleys and everything in between. Context deepens the value of counsel in crisis, but what else does it do? It expands the richness of counsel in triumph. It's such a joy whenever you actually experience victories, when you experience growth, when you move forward as a business, as a leader, as a person, and you've got someone sitting across from you that's not just like, oh, well, that's really cool, I guess. I don't really know if that was important to you, but rather you have someone that's gotten to walk with you over the course of the past three, four, five, maybe even 10 years. And y'all have built up the context, whether it's a counselor, a friend, a coach, a mentor, For them to share in the triumph with you, it expands the richness of triumph whenever we have context. And so God wants to speak to us through his people. And whenever we're looking for wise counselors, we want to make sure there are people that have a biblical worldview, that have wisdom, and that have context that we're operating in ongoing relationship with. So we said that God is actively speaking through his word, through his creation, through his example, through his people. And these would all be things that we would be wise to pay attention to and obey because to obey is to listen. Finally, God is speaking to us through his spirit. Now, how do we engage with the Spirit of God. Because Jesus literally said, it is better for you that I leave. Why? Because he said, then God will send the Holy Spirit to you. Synonyms for the Holy Spirit are the advocate, the counselor, the helper. So we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. It goes with us. And the question is not, is it speaking? Is it counseling? Is it advising? Is it helping? The Holy Spirit is doing all those things. That is the nature of what and who the Holy Spirit is. The question is, Are we listening? And so then, obviously, we would start to look for, okay, well, how do I get in on what the Holy Spirit is saying, how the Holy Spirit is helping, and the way that the Holy Spirit is guiding? And the answer to that question is prayer. Now, This can be a different way of looking at prayer than the way many Western, modern-day Christians look at prayer. Because so often, if we're not careful, prayer can become our to-do list that we consult God on every morning. And that's not what prayer was created to be, and that's not actually the objective of prayer. I thought about how I wanted to explain this and dive into this topic and I felt like what would be best would be to read you an excerpt from a book that I'm reading right now called Breathing Underwater. It's a really interesting book um, because it takes the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and it just says the reason why these steps work for addicts in the Alcoholics Anonymous community because it truly has miraculous results and it says the reason behind those miraculous results is one thing. It's that the 12 steps are all based on and rooted in the gospel. And so step 11 is related to consulting with a higher power. And so it says that this is really a gospel explanation of how we're supposed to leverage and utilize and engage with God and commune with God in prayer. And I just felt like this one excerpt from this really is a great description of what it looks like to pray in such a way that you're listening to what the Spirit is saying. And so this is from Richard Rohr's Breathing Underwater. The section is called, Being Willing to Let God Change You. And what is commonly called prayer You and your hurts, needs, and perspectives are still the central reference point, but now you have decided to invite a major power in to help you with your already determined solution. God can help you get what you want, which is still a self-centered desire, instead of God's much better role, which is to help you know what you really desire. And that's a reference to Matthew seven eleven. It always takes a bit of time to widen the lens and therefore the screen of life. One goes through serious withdrawal pains for a while until the screen is widened to a high definition screen. It is work to learn how to pray, largely the work of emptying the mind and filling the heart. That is all of prayer in one concise and truthful phrase, emptying the mind and filling the heart. At early stage praying, there has usually been no real renouncing of the small and passing self, so it is not yet the infinite prayer of the great body of Christ, but the very finite prayer of a small body that is trying to win, succeed, and take control, with a little help from a friend. God cannot directly answer such prayers because, frankly, they are usually for the wrong thing and from the wrong self, although we do not know that yet. In short, prayer is not about changing God— but being willing to let God change us. Or as step 11 says, praying only for the knowledge of his will. Jesus goes so far to say that true prayer is always answered, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Now, we all know that that is not factually true unless he is talking about prayer in the sense that I am trying to describe it. If you are able to switch minds to the mind of Christ, your prayer has already been answered. That new mind knows, understands, accepts, and sees correctly, widely, and wisely. Its prayers are always answered because they are, in fact, the prayers of God too. True prayer is always about getting the who right. Who is doing the praying? You or God in you? Little you or the Christ consciousness in you? The contemplative mind prays from a different sense of who I am. It rests and abides in the great I am and draws its life from the larger vine and the deeper well. Paul puts it this way, you are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is revealed and he is your life, you too will be revealed in all your glory within him. It does not get any better than that. And you are now personally in on the deal. Basically, prayer is an exercise in divine participation. You opting in and God always there. That feels like a good place to pause on that excerpt. Um, Again, the book is Breathing Underwater. What I love about that excerpt is it says, man, prayer is not just me giving God my to-do list or my wish list. Prayer is me communing with God and asking God to give me the mind of Christ, to see the world the way that he sees the world. And that becomes an exercise in obedience because we're saying what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, which he said, not my will, but your will be done. We want God's will to be done on this earth, but we also want God's will to be done in us us and through us. And so in many ways, when we pray and listen to his Holy Spirit, we're getting in on what God's will is. So we said that obedience comes from the Latin word abdire, and abdire is to listen. And when we choose to listen, we get in on what God is doing and how God is speaking. When we don't, the result is sordos. It means that we go crazy, right? We're not listening, we're absurd. And so where and how is God speaking? Through his word, through his creation, through his example, through his people, and through his spirit, The final truth about faithful obedience that would be wise to dwell on before we close out this episode is that obedience is a pathway to freedom, not an obstacle to freedom. If we're not careful, we can adopt the mindset and ideology and theology that obedience or following God's boundaries, guidelines, and limitations is blocking us from being free. But not only is that a misunderstanding of what obedience is, it's also a deep-seated misunderstanding of what freedom actually is. One of my favorite definitions of freedom is one that I heard offered by John Piper. He said, "'Freedom is the ability to do what will make you happiest in a thousand years.'" And that definition just blew my mind for a while. And it really took me kind of trying to break it down and trying to understand what he was actually saying. And, but I really like it because think about this for a second. Freedom is not just the ability to do what makes you happy, because if freedom is what makes you happy, then freedom is ice cream. But you and I both know that if I eat ice cream for half a day, I'm less free than when I started, right? So freedom can't just be temporal, impulsive happiness. Freedom is the ability to do what makes us Is So we're talking talking about the things that are actually truly sustainably satisfying. And then I love that he says for a thousand years because you know what's not going to be around in a thousand years? Well, I'm not going to be around in a thousand years. You're not going to be around in a thousand years. And, And so freedom is tied to things related to eternity and legacy, the ability to love God, love people, serve causes that we deeply believe in, engage in work that is actually meaningful. And so freedom is not a financial number. Freedom is nothing material. Freedom is not a job. Freedom is not a specific opportunity or relationship. Freedom is the ability to love God, love people, and engage in the meaningful work that he gave us to do right now today. And what's so cool about that is it means that freedom is accessible right now. I just have to walk the path that God gave me. And obedience is that path. Now, certainly we don't want to say, okay, obedience isn't rules. Obedience isn't discipline. Obedience isn't structure and boundaries, right? But too often we can get this idea in our head that discipline is bad, right? But I love the way Jocko Willink puts it. He says, discipline equals freedom. Now, that can be really easy to just breeze by and say, oh yeah, discipline equals freedom. I like that. That's good. Why is that actually true? Well, what is discipline? The voluntary decision to not be enslaved to your temporal impulses. If you think freedom is just doing whatever you want and whatever you feel like whenever you want and whenever you feel like, man, I'll tell you, that can start feeling like freedom. But if you only do what you want when you feel like it and you keep doing that, eventually you won't be able to not do it, even if you don't want to and even if you don't feel like it. And that's what addiction is called. You become enslaved by your temporal impulses. Conversely, whenever we follow structures and boundaries and we exercise self-control, we apply ourselves to obedience, the result is presence. And in presence, we find freedom. Do you want to operate against the grain of the universe? Because when you rub your hand against the grain, you get a lot of splinters, Or do you want to go with the grain of the universe, the way that God created things to work within the morals and ethics and boundaries and principles for how he created you to be and the man or woman that he designed you to be? And do you want to step into that and lead that way so that you're going with the flow and the grain of the universe that he created? obedience is not an obstacle to freedom. And as long as we perceive it in that way, or we allow the people that we influence to perceive it in that way, well, then we're completely misunderstanding what it is. And we're not going to be very good at exercising and embracing the virtue. Obedience is not an obstacle to freedom. It's a pathway to freedom. So let's review the three truths about faithful obedience. We said that obedience is a response to a loving God, not an angry God. Obedience is about attentive listening, not ignorant rule following. And finally, obedience is a pathway to freedom, not an obstacle to freedom. Let's close with a prayer. God, I pray that you would give us the ability and awareness to listen and to obey. Help us to attend to the way that you reveal what you want for us in your word, your example, your creation, your people, and your spirit. Give us the humility and the wisdom that we need in order to follow. Amen. Y'all, I hope that this was helpful today. If you want more content, like the content that's in this podcast, you can get the written email that we send out every single Wednesday. We call it Worth It Wednesday, and we send out a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. So many of you are already receiving that email and watching the video that's associated with it. We're just so grateful that you're part of that community. If you want to sign up for Worth It Wednesday, you can do so by clicking the link That's in the show notes of this episode. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go.